Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Showing your good side to the world has its rewards. When you become a plasma donor at Griffles, you'll help save lives and receive compensation for your time and effort. Up to $800 your first month. Use it for whatever you or your family may need now or in the future. You can donate plasma up to twice a week. And it's safe and simple at Griffles. Thousands of people are already doing it. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hey guys. So this episode we were still having technical issues. Wendy's microphone died and we just had to make do. So the sound quality is off, but we did the best we could. Wendy has a new microphone now, though, and we have tested it out, and we should be good going forward. So we just wanted to let you know that uh, the sound quality is a little bit off, and we know that, and thank you so, so much for sticking with us. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. to Fruit Loops Season 2, Episode 26. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers, true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. 
Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch uh, for sale on our website at fruitlesspod.com slash merch. And if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. That's right. Yes. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we are talking about Shinkichi Sakurada a Japanese-Canadian man living in Vancouver, Canada, who killed people he was supposed to be helping. Oh, my. But uh, before we get into it, how are you doing? Uh, Well, it's been kind of a rough week. Uh, Work has been really busy. Kind of got slammed at work. And then um, we had so much trouble trying to record our last or this episode. Right. (laughs) Last week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh but we're back. Uh I hope. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll see how this turns out in post production. Holy moly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The sound is a little off, but we're still working on uh how to get get it back to how it was. Yes. Yes. And I um also don't have anything exciting to report. I am just really glad to be back. I love doing this show. I have so much fun. It's kind of like therapy for me. And I was really sad that we couldn't do it last week. So um, for those of y'all who are still rocking with us, thank you for sticking with us and um, for being here. Also, Megan Marble had her baby. So today's the best day ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they had a boy, right? Yes, yes. And Harry was so happy. <laughs> so that was pretty cool um, when he came out to announce that mom and baby were good and how just excited he was. So I thought that was pretty fucking oh, nice. Yeah. Cute. Uh, uh-huh. So um, now we're going to check our mailbag. There we go. <laughs> All right. The angels are here. They are. Okay. So let's do it. <laughs> So Sesame on Facebook said, Wendy and Beth, you are both perfect. Oh, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I just found and fell in love with your show. I can't say enough how much I enjoy your banter and commentary. Fuckery at its finest indeed. <laughs> hey. <laughs> much love from Saskatchewan. Uh, so we, right. we have a Canadian fan. Yay. Woo-hoo. We All love right. Canada. <laughs> Yes, that's me. Thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, thank you. Um, I found, we got um, like 55, 60 reviews on iTunes. Most of them are good. Wow. Uh, and so I'm going to read <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, Pussy Newbie on Apple Podcasts um, titled the review Grippingly Entertaining. Uh, the Cleveland Strangler episode changed or ruined my life. I, uh, a good friend of mine lives there close to where it all went down. Now, every time I visit, I'm thinking about getting choked out in the back of my mind. LOL. (laughs) All jokes aside, this show is dope. (laughs) The perspective of these ladies brings uh, is crisp, on point, and long overdue. If you love the real and raw on true crime, you've hit the jackpot. So, hip-hop era. (laughs) Right on. Right on. Um, all right. Well, today, uh, who are we talking about, Beth? Today, uh, we're talking about Shinkichi Sakurada, who killed people for insurance money during the Great Depression in Vancouver, Canada. Mm, all right. Well, now we are going to get into my favorite part of the story, which is the stats. <laughs> all right. Shinkichi Sakurada, a.k.a. the Medicine Man, a.k.a. the owner of the East Cordova Street Murder Factory, was a Japanese man living in Vancouver, Canada. He was convicted of killing only one man, who was named Naokichi Watanabe, but was suspected of killing at least 20 people. His MO was that he would take in sick members of the Canadian-Japanese community who were sick and destitute. 
He would offer them medical treatment in exchange for them taking out a life insurance policy naming Sakurada as the beneficiary. Then, instead of providing actual medical treatment, he would kill them using drugs and poison. However, the man he was uh, convicted of killing was actually murdered with a hatchet. Um, he was, Sakurada, was apprehended, investigated, charged, convicted, and hung shortly thereafter. Sakurada and his accomplice, Tadeo Hitomi, were apprehended on March, or in March, of 1931. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take a step back. The setting is Vancouver, Canada in the 1930s during the Depression. Most of the Issei, or first-generation immigrants, arrived during the first decade of the 20th century. They were usually young and literate. They came from fishing villages and farms in Japan and settled in Vancouver, Victoria, and in the surrounding towns in BC. That's British Columbia. And there we go. Uh... (laughs) So, um, <clears throat> welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Issei uh, is a Japanese language term used by ethnic Japanese in countries in North America and South America to specify the Japanese people who are the first generation to immigrate there. Issei are born in Japan, and their children who are born in the new country are Nisei, and their grandchildren are Sansei. Yeah, not to be confused with uh, Sensei. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. A little bit different. Or, or Sansa. Yeah. Or Sansa Stark, right. <laughs> yeah, not Sansa Stark. <laughs> the first migrants were males, but women arrived shortly afterwards. They found work in sawmills, factories, and as fishermen. Hmm. Very early on, Japanese Canadians, both Issei and Nisei, faced prejudice and discrimination. Beginning as early as 1874, B.C. politicians pandered to white supremacists and passed a series of laws intended to force all Asians to leave Canada, which unfortunately sounds very familiar. It sure does. It sure does. All Asians were denied the right to vote. Uh, The Chinese in 1874, the Japanese in 1895, and South Asians in 1907. Laws excluded Asians from underground mining, um, the civil service, and from professions such as the practice of law, which required the practitioner to be listed on the provincial voting list. Labor and minimum wage laws ensured that employers hired Asian Canadians only for menial jobs or farm labor and paid them at lower pay rates than Caucasians. When Asians worked harder and longer to earn a living wage, White labor unions accused Asian Canadians of unfair competition, stealing jobs, Mm. and undermining union efforts to raise the living standards of white workers, which also sounds familiar. Yeah, This was 1930-ish. It's still the same song and dance, right? Same (laughs) shit. Same Same shit, shit. different century. That's right. Uh, During the next four decades, B.C. politicians, with the exception of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, or CCF, a social democratic uh, and democratic socialist political party in Canada, catered to the white supremacists on the province and fueled the flames of racism to win elections. Uh, is it just me? <laughs> Again, deja vu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so do I. I don't think it's just you. Okay, okay. <laughs> so on September 7th, 1907, five days ahead of the arrival of SS Montigal from Punjab, mm-hmm. a steamer carrying 901 Sikhs to Vancouver, hostility toward Asian immigrants erupted. Whipped up by agitators from the Asiatic Exclusion League, a mob of 9,000 smashed windows and destroyed the homes and shops of Asian Canadians in Chinatown and Japantown. What? That's out of control. 9,000? That's that's fucked up. Yeah, and they had a whole-ass Exclusion League? Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I have a brother and a sister, and I was in the middle. And mm-hmm. uh, so I was always like on one side or the other when we would have mm-hmm. fights. So uh, mm-hmm. when my brother and I were mad at my sister, we would fi- form an anti uh, my sister's name. I'm just going to call her. <laughs> Should I call her? <laughs> 
Beth two. <laughs> okay, yeah. So you would have like an anti Beth two, two league, anti Beth two club, and then oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and then when my sister and I were mad at my my brother, we would have mm-hmm. an anti my brother club. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so funny. I know. <laughs> How traumatizing. That reminds me of. It's so stupid. <laughs> yeah, and childish. I mean, yes, petty and childish. Very petty. Petty LaBelle. Was, was there ever an anti bet? No, never, uh, never. Never. Oh, wow. Lucky you, huh? <laughs> I was always included. <laughs> Lucky you. Well, uh, the same, the same is, it's not the same story for our Asian Canadian friends. No, no. At all. When the mob reached the Japantown section of Vancouver, they were driven away by Japanese immigrants who were veterans of the recent Russo Japanese War. That success fueled the yellow peril warnings of white supremacists and gave birth to the story slash lie that Japan was smuggling an army to Canada. Okay, guys, <laughs> you guys are really reaching at straws here. Also sounds familiar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to counteract a negative impact prejudice and their limited English ability, the Japanese, like many immigrants, concentrated in ghettos. The two main ones were Powell Street in Vancouver and the fishing village of Steveston, and developed their own institutions, schools, temples, churches, unions, cooperatives, and self-help groups. In Steveston, roughly 15 miles from Vancouver, there was a hospital staffed with Japanese-Canadian doctors and nurses trained in Japan and in segregated hospitals in the U.S. So they had their own damn hospital. Well, I mean, uh, sounds like they had no choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But Issei, Issei's contact with white society was primarily economic. And in the 1920s and 30s, even well-educated Nisei who sought employment in business or the professions were unable to obtain employment outside the Japanese-Canadian enclave. Some Nisei even had to seek employment in Japan. A few left BC for Ontario. Others started businesses serving Japanese-Canadians. Not to get too far ahead or beyond our story, but things got a little better for the Nisei as time progressed. But then they got worse once World War II began in the early 1940s. And the Japanese were put in internment camps in the U.S. and Canada. That's right. In Canada. Oh, not as woke as it likes to think it is. No offense, Canada. Just saying. (laughs) Um, During the Great Depression, thousands of Canadians flocked to Vancouver because of the warmer climate. The size of the city's homeless population and shanty towns grew. Conditions were bad for everyone, but even worse for the Japanese who were only paid a fraction of the social assistance that their white counterparts were paid. At the time of the Depression, to give you an idea of what securing a bag looked like at the time, (laughs) which no one was really doing, $2,500 was the equivalent of $40,000 today, or was the equivalent of two-year salary for a Japanese immigrant worker and could buy you a five-bedroom house. Mm. In short, white Canadians got better jobs, money, housing, and health care. Hence the need for Sakurada's fucked up hospital offering bullshit deadly medicine. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> now, at, at this point in our show, we normally like to dive into the killer's early life. Now, unfortunately, we don't really know anything about Sakurada's early life. We don't know yeah. if he was Issei or Nisei. Um, what we do know is that Shinkishi Sakurada was a sawmill worker at one point uh, who had a house on East Cordova Street in Japantown, close to the Hastings Sawmill where he worked. And at the time of this story, he was 40 years old. And as we mentioned, in Japantown, there were Japanese shops, hotels, restaurants, churches, a school and rooming houses, almost everything you need. But no hospital. Uh, the closest hospital was in Steveston. Shinkichi Sakurada uh, turned his six-room house into what he called a hospital. Quote, unquote. Uh, he himself yeah. was known in his community as a medicine man, quote, unquote, although he actually had no medical training. Uh, the signs for his hospital were all in Japanese, which, of course, the white folks just didn't understand. So it was able to fly under the radar, given that running your own 
private hospital when you aren't even a doctor is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so now we're going to dive into the timeline. So take it with it. So this one is also going to be a little bit different uh, because we have such limited information. Um, actually, almost everything we know about this case is from the book Blood, Sweat, and Fear by Eve Lazarus, uh, which we will link to in our show notes. Right. Um, a little after 11 p.m. on March 29th in 1931, Sakurada came to the house of his friend, Unshiro Fujino, a 37-year-old insurance agent. Sakurada wanted to know if Fujino had been um, had seen Na- Naokichi Watanabe, a man in poor health who had been staying in his quote-unquote hospital. 49-year-old Watanabe was Issei and had come to Vancouver from Japan about 20 years prior. He had suffered a back injury the year before, which left him partially disabled. Now, Fujino had not seen him. Sakurada told Fujino that he had loaned Watanabe $30 that night and had become worried when Watanabe had not returned. Sakurada had gone looking for Watanabe at a Japanese bathhouse and had phoned some friends but was unable to locate him. Sakurada then told Fujino that he thought Watanabe may have gone to visit his friend Jimmy Yamashita, a fisherman who lived on his boat moored at the Hastings Mill Wharf. He asked Fujino to come with him to look for Watanabe there. Fujino went with Sakurada to Yamashita's boat, but Yamashita told them that he had not seen Watanabe that night. By then, it was around 1 a.m., and Fujino was annoyed and just wanted to go home. (laughs) So the two men walked back along the railroad tracks when Sakura called out to Fujino and pointed to a dark object lying along the track. Sakurada lit a match to view the object, and it was a body, lying face up with his legs outstretched. He'd been badly beaten. Sakurada covered the head with his scarf and his body with his raincoat. He then told Fujino that it was Watanabe to go get the police and he would wait there. Fujino did so and returned with two detectives, Charles Spence and Harry Dugan, uh, who brought a flashlight. Oh, good. When Dugan lifted the scarf from Watanabe's face, he saw that the man's throat had been cut and that he also had cutting injuries to his chin, his ear, and his forehead. The right side of his head had been bashed in. So uh, now we're going to get into the investigation. <laughs> Detectives learned that Sakurada had loaned Watanabe money because he said Watanabe was hard up for money and he had no family in Vancouver. He then helped Watanabe secure a life insurance policy for $2,500 through Fujino. And Sakurada was named as the beneficiary. And if you recall, uh, I said earlier, $2,500 is approximately equivalent to $40,000 today. Whoa. Yeah. So um, Watanabe was also owed $1,000 through a workers' compensation matter, I guess. And earlier that month, he was given a partial payment of $293. With that money, he had arranged through a man named Fred Yoshi to purchase a ticket back home to Japan. The deal with the workers' comp board was that Watanabe would receive the remainder of his compensation once he returned to Japan. The detectives found this information to be suspicious. Hmm. So the next morning on March 30th, they raided Sakurada's home. There they found a stethoscope, a blood pressure quote-unquote detector, (laughs) hypodermic syringes, absorbent cotton, and several bottles of what contained cocaine and morphine. Oh my! Uh, They also found a man named Sam Sunda lying in a cot. He was very sick, so they took him to the hospital, a real one. He told police that he had come to Sakurada about a month earlier to be treated for a cough but that he had gotten worse after Sakurada had given him some injections. The same morning, a man by the name of Tadeo Hitomi, who in his community was considered intellectually disabled, came into the police station and reported that he had been robbed by two men. 
Detectives noted that he was extremely agitated and that he had scratches on his face and a big gash over his left eye. And later that same day, Hitomi came over to Sakurada's house while the police were still searching it. Hmm. I wonder why he did that. Um, Hitomi got into a conversation with the Japanese interpreter working for police, and it was revealed that Hitomi knew Watanabe and had fished with him. Uh, So Detective Dugan took Hitomi back to the police station and questioned him through an interpreter. Um, Now, this was a police interpreter, so I don't, in my mind, it probably wasn't um, like the best option. You know what I mean? Um, Dugan has said that while he was questioning him, he noticed a piece of paper sticking out under Hitomi's cap. This turned out to be a note, which in Japanese characters read, White police suspect me of murdering Watanabe. I have disgraced the Japanese community. I will die. I will kill myself. When Dugan searched Hitomi, he found a sheet wrapped around his waist. Dugan alleged that Hitomi intended to hang himself with it. And uh, I I find this story very suspect. I do too. I don't know why he'd have a note in his cap. Yeah. Uh, Why would he keep it there? Why would it be like sticking out so that somebody could see it? Why would he have a sheet wrapped around? I don't know. The whole story sounds fishy. Yeah. And I, I wonder if Sakurada was behind writing of the note and also the staging of the sheet to make it look like he was trying to kill himself. You know what I mean? To sort of, um, I don't, deflect. I don't know. I was thinking it was the police that that did it. Oh, look, I wouldn't put it past them. So, um, yeah, yeah, you might be right. Uh, who knows? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they had they had Japanese interpreters and stuff who could have written the note for them. I don't know. Um, it, it just sounds really weird. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, good point. Uh, police raided his room and took two stoves, one for burning oil and one for coal. The ashes from the stoves and his clothes. Um, Hitomi's neighbors in the rooming house that he lived in told police that they had smelled something odd coming from his room. Uh, Mr. Ishii, who lived in the room next to Hitomi's, told police that he had lent Hitomi, a hatchet. According to police, Hitomi quickly broke down and told them that he owed both Sakurada and Watanabe money and that Sakurada had promised him part of the insurance payment and he would forgive him his debt if he killed Watanabe. He told the police that he, Sakurada, and Watanabe had walked down to the railroad tracks and that while Sakurada had engaged Watanabe in conversation, Hitomi had brought out the hatchet and then had uh, it hidden in his coat. He first hit Watanabe in the neck with the hatchet. Watanabe fought back, though, but Sakurada grabbed his arms while Hitomi continued to strike him with the hatchet. Hitomi showed police where he had hidden the hatchet and some bloody clothing. During further investigation, insurance company representatives told police that several Japanese citizens who had died supposedly of natural causes during the past two or three years had insurance policies taken out through Fujino with Sakurada named as the beneficiary. Other Japanese people came forward with reports of suspicious circumstances surrounding the deaths of friends and relatives. A man named Tomizo Sata said two of his children had died at Sakurada's hospital. His daughter, Shizue, had died from tuberculosis, quote-unquote, and his son, Masamichi, had died of, quote, intestinal trouble, end quote. That's sad. Yeah. Police suspected that Sakurada was responsible for as many as 20 deaths and that they had most likely been poisoned. They talked about exhuming bodies to test for poison, but there is little evidence to suggest that this was ever done. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, Yeah. Yeah. What are you guys what are you guys doing over there? Uh, Japanese language newspapers reported widely on this story, but the mainstream media took little interest. Right. Until the police started calling Sakurada's house a murder factory. And then they all started paying attention. (laughs) This is juicy, y'all. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so the news is racist in Canada, too. <laughs> um, so um, now we are going to get into the arrest and the trial. Um, so let's hear it, Beth. Sakurada and Hitomi were charged with murder. 
Officials alleged that Sakurada and Hitomi had killed Watanabe for the insurance money, which they had done hastily so that they could collect before Watanabe could leave for Japan. Sakurada and Hitomi were tried separately. Sakurada testified that he knew nothing of the murder, but had just arrived on the scene after Hitomi had committed it. He said that he was afraid to say anything because Hitomi had threatened to kill him if he did. Hitomi's attorney offered no defense, but only said that the confession had been made under duress and could not be admitted as evidence. And after Hitomi's testimony, the judge recommended that he be examined because he didn't seem to be in a fit mental condition. And if you recall, his uh, community considered him, uh, what did what did they consider him? <laughs> Uh, I guess intellectually disabled was the word that they intellectually used. disabled. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, but the most damning testimony came from Fred Yoshi, the man who Watanabe had paid to arrange his passage back to, to Japan. Yoshi told the court that Sakurada had asked him to kill Watanabe and two other men whose lives he had insured. Yoshi had taken the money, but instead of committing the crimes, had fled to another city. Allegedly at the crime scene when Sakurada and Fujino found Watanabe's body, Fujino told Sakurada, you have put me in a bad position this time. To which Sakurada had answered, I quite appreciate what I have done. And he promised Fujino that he would receive a cut from Watanabe's insurance money. Wow. No shame in his game. Okay. Um, nope. So where are they now? I'll tell you. Uh, so dead. <laughs> everybody's dead. This dead. happened in the 30s. Uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Everybody's dead, dead, dead. Yeah. Uh, B-E-A-D dead. <laughs> Sakurada and uh, Hitomi were executed by hanging on December 30th in 1931. Happy New Year! At Okala Prison. <laughs> that might have been inappropriate. Sorry. <laughs> Fred Yoshi, the man who testified at trial that he had been asked by Sakurada to kill Watanabe, was arrested for breach of trust in July of 1931. As it turned out, he had many aliases and he ran a thriving business of human smuggling, bringing Japanese oh. people to Canada and forging documents while he was working as an interpreter for the immigration department. Oh my God. So he served two years and seven months of hard labor. Okay. Uh, well, we are not sure what happened to Bunshiro Fujino, um, and the house on East Cordova Street is still standing today. Um, yeah. So that's it for the story. Now we're going to talk about what we think made this killer snap. Oh, go ahead, Beth. So um, he took advantage of his situation and the fact that Japantown was isolated from the rest of the community. He had a house, which not everyone at the time had, and he found a way to make money from it. Uh, It was the Depression. So what the Mm -hmm. hell? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why not kill some people and make a little money? (laughs) Sure. This looks like a great opportunity. Yeah. So we don't have enough information to know exactly what his deal was psychologically, but uh, he obviously cared little about other people, um, people in his own community. You would think he would at least care about the people in his community if he didn't care about Whitey, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I don't think that he necessarily snapped. I think just timing, right? It it was the depression. Everybody was struggling. And then his really sick, fucked up mind was like, there's a business opportunity here. So um, <laughs> he, was, he was just an entrepreneur. He was just, yeah, he was a businessman. Um, but it, it is quite sinister. Um, and I just, I just really messed up to, again, take advantage of oh, the most yeah. vulnerable people within your own community. So, yeah, sick um, people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into some takeaways, what we, what we thought of the story. Personally, I just, again, thought it was very sad. Um, that no one noticed these lives were being lost. Plus, he, pre- he again, he preyed on the most vulnerable people in, within his own community, which is so shameful. Yeah. Um, from what I know about Asian culture, honor, or in Japan, Bushido, um, is a big part of um, their culture and belief system and, and moral moral compass. And um, 
the individuals involved in the deaths of these, you know, 20 or so Japanese individuals clearly had none. What's his face was yeah. human, human smuggling. Also, I found the case um, really challenging to find information about, like, what we know why that is at Fruit Loops, uh, because the news is racist. But um, that was disappointing <laughs> because there was 20 people, well, up to 20 people who lost their lives and only one body was found. Um, and it was found in a very brutal fashion. So I am suggesting that Hollywood or Netflix or somebody make a movie about this. Um, last yeah, week, it's a really interesting story. Oh, for sure. Um, the, the translation aspect of the case made me really uncomfortable because I just wonder if the court appointed interpreters were um, adequate enough to relay messages between um, the Japanese speaking parties and the English speaking Canadian authorities. Right. Um, with, and, and so if, if messages were muddled, well, where's the justice in that? So anyway. Yeah. That's yeah. What I Always concerning. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I, I also found this case really interesting and I wish we knew more about it. And I had no idea that Canada had Japanese internment camps during World War II. Um, uh, I knew that the U.S. had them, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that the Canadians did. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. Yeah, yeah. I thought the U.S. was the only uh, fucked up country that did that kind of thing. But <laughs> I also really never thought about the reasons why cities have Chinatowns and Japan towns, etc. I guess mm-hmm. I thought it was because they just kind of tended to come together and it's good for business. But I, I didn't really think about the fact that they were actually forced to form yeah. their own communities because they yeah. got shoved out of the white communities. I mean, um, looking now, it's obvious, <laughs> right. but not something that I gave a lot of thought to. I was just like, oh, they have good food, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, the parallels with what was going on in the late 19th and early 20th century and today are pretty shocking. Yeah. We haven't learned our lesson. <laughs> no, obviously not. And the tactics used by the white supremacists and politicians during that time, making up lies to stoke fear, it is still being used today in the yeah. U.S. and probably in Canada, too. And it's frustrating because yeah. why don't people see it for what it is? It's enraging. Right. Uh, same right. shit, different century. Yep. Yep. Uh, when, you know, Maya Angelou always says, or she's dead now, but she used to say, you know, when you know better, you do better, but we, we know that we know better. And, um, the white supremacists aren't doing any better. better. Yeah. Not doing any better. Yeah. Um, now we are going to talk about how not to get murdered. So, <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, that is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. All right. Hit it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> oh, I'm on. I'm on. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's your time to shine. It's time. <laughs> Sasha in our discussion group posted an article about a woman who discovered that her ex-boyfriend was living in her attic. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. She had suspicions that someone had been in the house, but didn't really know. It's like she saw things moved. It's just like the toilet seat was up and there there's no men living in the house and things oh like that. You know? Oh my God. <laughs> so oh. he ended up attacking her. 
Uh, but she was able to get away and the police arrested him. He had violated a PFA, which I had to Google because I didn't know what that was. It's a mm-hmm. protection from abuse, which is one of several different kinds of protection orders you can get in Pennsylvania. Okay, so all of that is to lead to a website that I stumbled across and where I found that information, which is womenslaw.org. Oh. And it has tons of information on it, including the different laws in different states, how to get protection orders in your state, information about advocates, lawyers, shelters, all organized by state. It also has information on identifying abuse. It seems like a great site, and I recommend bookmarking it. So it's womenslaw.org. And I will uh, put it in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Beth. That was a dope-ass resource, so thank you. Um, I wanted to remind people of some everyday affordable tools that you can use to save your life in the event of an attack. Um, I found this list on urbansurvivalist.com, and uh, I will link it in the show notes as well. Um, so, like, a durable folding knife is a good thing to have, um, like, you know, in your purse. Just don't take it to the airport. Um, but you can open it quickly and um, attack somebody. Pepper spray is, like, 10 or 15 bucks, so that's a cheap thing to keep on a keychain. Um, a stun gun. Um, I found, like, a tactical stun gun. It's like a pet, but it's a pen that you can like keep in your purse and activate when you need to in the event of an attack. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, they, they're, uh, there's a variety of price points. Uh, the cheapest one I found was 15 bucks and the most expensive one was a hundred bucks. Um, but again, you can keep it in your purse um, in an easy to reach place. If you find yourself in a pickle, um, do you have an umbrella uh, or uh, you can use your umbrella as a uh, weapon? Um, what else? Uh, a belt you can take off and beat someone's ass or choke them um, <laughs> <laughs> or tie them up until help comes um, or a scarf. Yes, girl. It can be used to tie somebody up or strangle somebody. Um, and did you know, I, I didn't know this, the French fucking Legion carries scarves and uses them as tactical weapons. I thought it was just a fashion accessory. I did not know that. Um, and then don't forget about your car keys because they can be used as like a dagger or um, something to stab um, that could inflict some serious damage on a would-be predator. So, um, and practice taking your keys and, and using putting them in between your fingers and just. Yeah, I do that. If I'm like walking somewhere in the dark to my car, I'll put my keys in between my fingers. Yeah. So I could punch somebody with my keys. <laughs> exactly. And get away. It's so, I mean, it's so simple, but. We have these weapons on us at all times anyway, so might as well use them when you need. Might as well. So now we're going to get into some serial killer and true crime news. So what do you got for us, Beth? Well, AJ and our Facebook group posted an article about a Glen Burnie, Maryland man who was shot by his neighbor on April 15th, almost exactly two months after the victim was denied a protective order. Oh, no. So uh, Tyree Hudson, a black man, was a 22-year-old software engineer from North Carolina who had worked for the aerospace and defense technology company Northrop Grumman for eight months before his neighbor fatally shot him. After responding to calls of a man firing a shotgun at an apartment complex in the Baltimore suburb, police arrived to discover Hudson dead with gunshot wounds. Then authorities engaged in a 10-hour standoff with suspected shooter, 52-year-old James Vorembeck, a white man. Okay. The incident came after Hudson unsuccessfully tried to get a protective order following a February 16th interaction with Vorembeck. In his petition, Hudson wrote that his neighbor said, you knew this day was coming and you know what you did. Hudson Uh-oh. said he didn't know what Verombeck was talking about. Oh, God. He also said Verombeck gave me a death gesture using his thumbs across his throat. Oh. I'm, I'm assuming like uh, slashing yeah. across his throat, you know, <laughs> and that he harassed, stalked and threatened him with violence. A temporary court order was issued that day that prohibited Verombeck from abusing or contacting Hudson. 
But that order was then lifted three days later when District Court Judge Debbie Patterson Russell denied the protective order. She said Hudson's request could not meet the burden of proof. Oh, God. The Commission on Judicial Disabilities had suggested a six-month suspension for Russell months ago, saying she violated state law and did not stay up on administrative work. Additionally, Uh she shouted at fellow judges, pushed a courthouse staffer, and overlooked more than 100 search warrants. Oh, no. As a result... Russell had been on temporary assignment in Anne Arundel County, where she heard and denied Hudson's petition for a protective order as the Maryland Court of Appeals decided whether to accept a recommendation that she be suspended for her actions. So she was um, trash. Basically, uh, in time out, (laughs) when she uh, denied the protective order and this guy died as a result. Oh, yeah. She's got blood on her hands. Yeah, she's she's trash. Mm -hmm. You're right. Uh, Tyreek Hudson was a driven student who completed a five-year early college program in four years and graduated from North Carolina A&T State University with a computer science degree in two and a half years. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. Gosh, I'm so, yeah. how unfortunate that this young man tried to, tried to go through the proper channels using the U.S. legal system and it failed him at every turn um, until ultimately mm-hmm. he lost his life. That's really sad. Thanks for that yeah. story, AJ. AJ. AJ's always coming with the good content in the Facebook group. So thank you, yeah, AJ. She is. Who knows? She's I don't good. get to say this enough, but thank you. Yeah, And thank um, you to all of our Facebook discussion group members and all of your participation we really appreciate it yeah we love it we love it yeah um so now we are going to get into the shout out section of our show this is where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color any lgbtq um or any true crime goodies um so i was just going to shout out um someone great it's a movie on netflix Um, And it is so just lovely. First of all, the cast, it's um, about this girl um, played by Gina Rodriguez. She gets dumped by her long-term boyfriend, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield, the dude from Get Out. And um, anyway, he's just all over the place. He's funny. Uh, Great actor. Uh, And she plays a music journalist um, who recruits her two best friends for one last outrageous adventure in New York City before she moves on to a dope-ass job in San Francisco. Um, it's got an 82% score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's fun. It's funny. Um, it stars, again, Gina Rodriguez, Brittany Snow, DeWanda Wise, and Lakeith Stanfield. Um, you get to see uh, uh, two Black queer women fall in love. Um, Gina Rodriguez is obviously a Latinx woman. Um, and the dynamic between this diverse group of friends is dope. The music is dope. It's just a great movie. So um, someone great. Um, and, uh, it's kind of a rom-com, but, uh, I don't want to spoil it. It doesn't end like most rom-coms. Okay. Um, so anyway, and then, um, I wanted to shout out Disgrace Land, which is a music true crime podcast. Hmm. Um, interesting. Have you heard of it? No. It, it is so good. Like he's, uh, he's covered people like Amy Winehouse, um, Kurt Cobain, oh. James Brown, um, and he gets into their deaths, their bad behavior and, um, things like that. Um, and it is like 30 minute ish episodes um, that trace the most insane criminal stories surrounding our most interesting and infamous pop stars. Um, Disgraceland melts music history, true crime, and transgressive fiction. Um, the stories of these rock stars are fucking nuts. So it's really good. It's yeah, I'm going to have to subscribe to that one. Yes. So what do you got? Um, I just wanted to shout out Raimi on Hulu. It's a TV show series, uh, mm-hmm. a comedy co-written by and stars Raimi Hassan, who's mm-hmm. an actor and stand-up comedian. It's uh, He based the main character on his own experiences growing up in suburban New Jersey as a Muslim. And uh, so it's about a Muslim guy in uh, American culture and it's real Uh and it's, you know, can be kind of uh, raunchy. Uh (laughs) It's not, it's not, uh, 
yeah, not sweet and innocent by any means. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's real and it's it's really funny. So yeah, I just wanted cool, to give cool, that cool. a shout out. Yeah. Well, thank you, Beth. Um, where can the people find us? Well, our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com slash merch. That's right. All right, everybody. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.